Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Happy Mama Movement podcast. I'm Amy Taylor-Kabaz. I would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on which this podcast is recorded as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. And as this podcast is dedicated to the wisdom and knowledge of motherhood, I would like to acknowledge the mothers of this land, the elders, their wisdom, their knowing, and my own elders and teachers. Welcome back, everybody. One of the great, exciting things I get to do as part of the training of Mama Rising coaches and facilitators is speak to some of the world's amazing and most profound experts on motherhood, matrescence, our culture and our society. And so for this week's podcast episode, I wanted to bring to you one of those interviews a sneak peek into what we do in the Mama Rising training, but also an insight into motherhood here in Australia. But even if you're outside of Australia, a really amazing insight into how motherhood has changed from today to 75 years ago. I am speaking with Dr. Carla Pascoe-Lay, who is an academic, an oral historian, and who, as you will hear in this interview, has really amazing insights that helps us not only understand our own experience of motherhood right now, but where we've come from, our own mothers and our grandmothers. Please have a look in the show notes for more details of her work and enjoy. Welcome, everybody. I am thrilled to be speaking to my guest today, Carla Pascoe-Lay. Carla is, in Australia, one of our real experts and researchers into the experience of motherhood and childhood, both in the present time and in the past, which is what I'm really interested in hearing her speak to us about today, how becoming a mother is different now than it used to be in Australia She has recently completed a huge study of this, interviewing over 60 diverse women about their experience of becoming a mother and has just published her book, Becoming a Mother, an Australian History. So, Carla, thank you so much for joining me and exploring this topic. Thank you and welcome. Thank you, Amy. It's very exciting for me to be speaking with kindred spirits. (laughs) Yes, we definitely are that here. So, first of all, my great passion and what we're all here to talk about really is the experience of matrescence, of becoming a mother. So when you think about what happens to a woman when she becomes a mother, how do you describe that? 
Great question. I mean, it's so rich and profound, isn't it? And there's so many aspects. Look, I think sometimes what's really fascinating about becoming a mother is it almost defies language. It's it's so different to any other experience that we have in our lives that we struggle to find the words. And I think sometimes we have to then rely on metaphor. I describe my experience of becoming a mother as exploding into my life like an atom bomb. It changed everything. And I think that's a really important thing for women to understand. Um, Most profoundly, becoming a mother changes a woman's sense of self. It changes how she thinks about herself and her place in the world. But it also changes everything else. It changes all of her relationships, um, particularly with her family, her own parents, any siblings that she has. Um, If she has a partner, it profoundly changes her relationship with her partner. It changes her body forever. It changes her emotions and her emotional capacities, her, her strength of feeling about different things. It changes her politics, it changes her opinions, it changes her relationship to her work and it changes her place in her community. Um, And I think it's really important for us to understand the incredible profundity and significance of matrescence, that that it does change everything. Has it always been like that? Has this profound atom bomb of identity shift, as you describe it so beautifully, been the same throughout your understanding of this experience? It's really hard for us to know for sure. Mm. So the best ways that we can try to work out how matrescence is experienced at different points in time and across different cultures is to look to the work that different researchers have done. And as I'm sure you're aware and um, your facilitators and colleagues here are aware, the concept of matrescence came from anthropologist Anna Raphael. And um, it was her study and the study of other anthropologists across different cultures that discovered that even though the experience of becoming a mother has different rituals, Uh, surrounding it in different cultures, it is always a profound shift no matter what culture you're in. Historically, my research goes back across living memory. So because I'm an oral historian, I interview women about their experience of becoming a mother. Um, And living memory right now in 2023 takes us back roughly to about 1950s motherhood. Um, in terms of the women that are still alive today to to speak with us. And so that's that's been the um, parameters of the research I've done here. So it's roughly the last 75 years of motherhood. Um, what's really interesting is when, so when I was interviewing these different generations of women, there was a difference between how contemporary mothers in the 21st century describe becoming a mother compared to women who were having their children in the 50s and 60s. Contemporary mothers were much more likely to describe it as fundamentally changing them. And I think there's a few reasons for that. There's actually a lot of reasons for that and it's quite complex. But the main ones, to my mind, are that um, we now see motherhood as a choice 
And so, and this is the this is the fundamental thing that changed with the women's liberation movement in the 70s. So women having children in the 50s and 60s had grown up assuming that they would become mothers. They had created a kind of pre-maternal identity, if you like, throughout yeah. their childhood, their girlhood, because they had grown up with this assumption that one day they would become a mother. And, and of course, not all of them did. But they had started to fashion aspects of themselves towards that future identity of becoming a mother. Whereas women today grow up in Australia, grow up very aware that motherhood is a choice, aware that they may or may not become mothers. And so all of that kind of um, identity preparation for motherhood happens much later in life. Oh, yes. There's another couple of really important things that make a difference. One of them is, um, again, the women's liberation movement told women that they could be more than mothers. And one of the things that changed then was that many more women uh, entered the paid workforce than, than had been previously, and many more women combined working with motherhood. Now, for contemporary Australian women, we grow up assuming that our career will be the centre of our identity, not our mothering. If anything, you know, mothering is a thing that has to fit around the career. So we assume that that the key to happiness in life is finding the work that most fulfills you and following that, and that that's what you should focus all your efforts on. And motherhood radically disrupts both those assumptions about what the most important thing in your life is, but also your ability to continue pursuing your work and your career. Um, and then the, the other final thing I'll, I'll highlight is just the shifting age of first motherhood. So. Mothers of the 1950s on average had their first child in their late teens or at the latest in their early 20s. My grandmother had her first child at 19, for example. That was, that was typical. Mothers today, we know that the average age of first motherhood is now later than 30, and many women have their first child in their late 30s or even into their 40s. And it's very different in, in terms of the psychology of a woman and what becoming a mother means to her. It's very different to have your first child and become a mother in your late teens when your identity is still quite fluid and plastic and in formation compared to having a first child in your 30s or 40s when you've many, you know, many Australian women today have probably travelled, they might have had multiple partners they might have done multiple jobs. They've probably done tertiary study and they have quite a fixed sense of identity. Like this is me, this is my place in the world. And again, motherhood just fundamentally shifts that sense of stability and, and competency. Like I'm an adult and I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I should have warned you, it's a long answer because I do think it's complex. Um, but I think for all of those reasons, becoming a mother is experienced as a more disruptive force in the 21st yes. century. Oh, no, I, I can imagine how complex this answer is, and thank you for almost distilling it down to those three points. I, that makes so much sense to me. I remember my own experience of it was that mother would be, motherhood would be something I would add on to my already full life. It wasn't at the centre of my full life. In fact, everything else was, and it was like, oh, yes, of course, I'll become a mum as well. And whereas if you become a mother at 19, 
And not only are you preparing, I love the way you say right from childhood, you're almost creating this pre-maternal identity in the 1950s. But not only you're creating that, but everyone around you is assuming that that's who you will become. That's the story you're told from birth. Whereas our generation, the story I was told from birth was you can't just be a mum. There was an invitation from the very beginning of what else will you do with your life other than become a mum? And that is such a completely different experience going into it. Um, So what about the role of valuing motherhood? Because this is also what I see in that, you know, that separation of choice of becoming a mother. We also undervalue now the, the, the caring role the the day-to-day importance of being a mother and what does that do to our experience of motherhood because when I think of back to the 1950s I would assume in the stories you've heard that there was an assumption I'll become a mother but also that that's an important role for me that's what I'm here for whereas now that's not how we feel necessarily. I think you're very right Amy I mean and I think as a society as a whole, we've we've devalued care. Um, we see that across the caring professions, both paid and unpaid caring work in our society, care has been devalued. Um, what's interesting when I've asked uh, 1950s mothers about how they felt about their role is that they've often said, I felt really valued and respected for my work as a mother. I felt valued and respected in my community and in my society. Um, And often they said by their partners as well, most of them were married and in heterosexual relationships. Um, And they said, you know, it was understood between my partner and I that um, father was the breadwinner and he would go out to work and that was his role. And the mother was the homemaker and the carer and she would stay home. And both roles were seen as complementary and equally respected. Mm. Um, so that was that was their sense. I think it was important and uh, appropriate that the women's liberation movement, um, that second wave feminists pointed out the way that women's potential was being constrained, that they were defined only by their caring role and they were seen to be able to do nothing more. Um, that was a really important shift, but I think my sense personally is that we've gone too far in critiquing the ways in which women's potential had been constrained by their reproductive bodies. Um, in f- feminists, then, no, it's not what even so much feminist, it's popular understandings of feminism mm. took us to a point that what women should strive for in order to be valued by themselves and by their society was their value as a worker and their value out in the public sphere. Um, And that, as you say, mothering, if you chose to pursue it, was just something that you would add on to that. Um, But it certainly wasn't the most important aspect of that. And I think that we've lost something really important by choosing to devalue care because... um, we don't make space for it. We don't um, remunerate it adequately. If you think about things like parental leave, and we don't uh, provide enough support 
that a woman can embrace her caring role completely. Um, and it sets up just a, a fundamental conflict um, for most women in that the vast majority of women, when they become a mother, are shocked at how much they love their children and how much they want to be with their children. Yes. And then they feel this deep urge, but um, at the same time, they're getting all these messages that it's not valued or important. So that their parental leave is only, if, if they're lucky enough to have it, is only for this certain period of time at this very low wage. Um, the implication there is if you choose to stay with your children for longer than that, you, you do that on your own terms and, you know, suffer the financial consequences. Um, we see that if they're lucky enough to have a partner and their partner takes up their, their, their partner leave, um, the federal government allowance, again, is only for a short um, period of time. There's an assumption that that's not valuable, the partner being involved in care. Um, there's all of these ways in which we subtly communicate to women that, that they shouldn't value their role as mothers. And even more insidiously than that, that there's probably something wrong with them if they really, really want to stay home with their children. Oh, absolutely. I, again, found that myself, but also after speaking to so many mothers over the last decade, there is almost this apology. There is almost this trying to over-explain themselves that they didn't go back to their career or they didn't step back into it like they expected. And it's shocked them. It's surprised them. They feel guilty. They feel like there's something wrong with them because they were not prepared for this shift within them that made them think about their career in a completely different way. And they have to almost, oh, I'm so lucky because my partner can cover my 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 financial contribution oh it's only because of this we feel like we have to explain ourselves because choosing motherhood is so not acknowledged in our day and age yeah that's right and I and I think it's there's so many ways in which um we make women feel like they sh they shouldn't feel that way I mean one of them is um you, you've probably heard of the term intensive mothering. So it, it was it was developed by um, sociologists um, to explain the rise of, at, at a certain period of time, um, an expectation that women would be heavily involved in mothering their children, um, but that it set up this conflict because they were supposed to be doing that. This is in the 1980s and 90s at the same time that they were returning to work. So there's this sense of inattention and conflict between the expectation of intensive mothering and the reality of their lives. Um, but that, that's all true. But the concept of intensive mothering is used as a critique of women who want to be really involved in their children's lives. Oh, they've just been sucked in to mm. the ideology of intensive mothering. Mm. Um, I would rather see that flipped where we could actually say, isn't that beautiful? that that woman loves her children so deeply and she really wants to be involved in their life. There's nothing, there's nothing pathological about that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually something to be celebrated, I think. Absolutely. So when you look at this experience, the differences between early, you know, 75 years ago and now, what do you see that we have improved in? What do you see are the better experiences of motherhood now? Because we're really focusing on how 
you know, the identity shift is such a massive wake-up call and shock for so many of us that we have this pull between work and home that used to not be there. On the flip side, what do you see? There's so many things, but but the story is always complex. It's sort of it's it's not that it's gotten better or worse, that, mm. but just rather that it's changed. Um, so so many things have changed. One is that because of the women's health movement, particularly in the, in the 70s, there's been a growing emphasis on providing um, knowledge and choice for women, and so and that's a that's intended to empower women. So part of that is around um, maternity health. Mm-hmm. So whether that's um, the options that are available to, to a woman for support during pregnancy and birth, um, the amount of information that she's given about birth. So women in the 50s were told almost nothing about childbirth. So the advent of childbirth education classes, the development of a literature about that, um, the training of healthcare professionals to educate women about what childbirth would be like. Um, these are all massive improvements. Uh, similarly, just the rise of information about parenting and child rearing, that, that shifted. I mean, most women in the 50s didn't read anything in preparation for parenting. Um, some so of them surprising. were starting... It's amazing, isn't it? So because it's, the, it's their number one role. It's what yep. they were here to be born and do. And yet they weren't told what birth was like. They weren't told what it was. But was it assumed, therefore, that the mothers handed it down to the next? Like, was it assumed it was women's business and therefore the health system was separate? Like, why Why do you think that was? It was partly because motherhood was seen to be intuitive. Oh, so yes. it was supposed to be that something women could naturally do. Um, mm-hmm. and, and one woman I interviewed said that that actually took away a lot of anxiety because she just assumed that she would know how to mother. So she didn't worry about it in anticipation. Um, wow. But of course, if things didn't go well, you wouldn't necessarily have understood why or, or had much information about why. Um, the lack of information around pregnancy and birth and breastfeeding was more to do with uh, cultural discomfort with those things. They were seen as, because they were associated with nudity and sexuality, this is an era in which people were more, um, well, let's say less sexually liberated than we are today. Sex education didn't exist. So I've also researched menstruation and women of this era weren't warned about menstruation before it happened either. So there's this whole category of life to do with bodies and reproduction and sexuality that women weren't prepared for so it was it was probably more to do with that squeamishness um I would say Mm, so it's been wonderful that um we now have more information than ever before I think the double-edged sword of that is that um well it's partly that when you have choice choice brings anxiety because you have to choose don't you so for example if you're giving birth for the first time and you've never done it before and no one can really understand what birth's like until you've been there um how are you supposed to work out what the best sort of model of birthing support for you is so um yeah it's that thing it's sort of like pandora's box isn't it as soon as you're given knowledge um there's there's um danger and apprehension that surrounds that knowledge but overall I think it's a wonderful thing 
that we prepare women much better for motherhood. I think the thing that's really missing for me is is matrescence. I don't know about you, Amy, but I don't remember anyone ever saying to me that motherhood would change my identity or, or talking about those profound psychological aspects beforehand. No, and which is why I started to do this work 15 years ago because it was absolutely um, shocking, doesn't even describe it. It was, it was the biggest, uh, this sounds melodramatic, but I genuinely think it was the biggest shock of my life because I really did think I knew who I was. It's on the level of the experience of, like my relationship, my marriage ending, like up there with, oh my goodness, I didn't know it was going to feel like this. I didn't know it was going to change me so much. I didn't know that this was how it was going to be. So what do you then think about where we're going? You know, this is where we've been. We can see both positives and challenges for where we are. Um, when you think about the experiences and the changes, the conversations we're now having of where we're heading, where do you think we're heading in the right direction? But also, which direction should we be focusing on? Where should we be heading with these support and understanding of motherhood? I mean, I think crystal ball gazing is very difficult, but I can tell you where I'd like us to be heading. Yes, please. Um, I think. I, I would like to hope, Amy, that the work of, of people like yourself and myself and um, psychologists like Alexandra Sachs are slowly contributing to an improved understanding of the psychological shifts that accompany matrescence. Um, I think that in the last... 30 years, we've developed a very negative um, way of talking about motherhood in our society. Yeah. Um, I think what, one way you can think about that is looking at newspaper articles. So all, almost all that we ever see in the news media about motherhood is its negative aspects. So um, it's been really great that we've started talking about perinatal anxiety and depression but they're often the only maternal emotions that we talk about in that public space. And so you kind of develop this sense that motherhood is inevitably depressing, yes. you know. Um, and then we talk about how desperately women need better childcare and parental leave. And again, to me, it, it, uh, before I became a mother, reading that, it gave me this sense that all mothers were desperate to get away from their children. Yes, and because, also, Carla, that motherhood is a disaster for your career, which actually yeah. stats show us, it, you know, it is detrimental to your career. But it was this real sense of if I choose motherhood, then it's bad news for all of these other areas of my life is the story yeah. of everything, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And, that's, and, that, and it is true. But what concerns me is um, we lose sight of this critical distinction that was made by American feminist Adrienne Rich between motherhood is institution and mothering as experience. And that's why my book is about mothering. It's about the experience and emotions of mothers. It's not about the patriarchal institution of motherhood because we've set contemporary women up to feel as though becoming a mother is inevitably all of those negative things that are part of the social construct of motherhood 
rather than it can also be liberating, emancipatory and the most sort of self-actualizing experience of your life. And it can be all of those things. But the, the critical distinction is we can't place all of the responsibility upon individual women to ensure that becoming a mother is self-actualizing. They need support to be able to do that. And I think that I hope that we are slowly heading in the direction of understanding that, that if we provide sufficient supports to women um, from the healthcare professionals supporting them, that they have uh, beautiful, empowered births that are surrounded by continuity of care with trusted professionals, if we educate their partners and families and friends to surround them with this kind of loving circle of support whenever they need it, recognising that raising infants is incredibly difficult and demanding, um, that it will sap, you know, everything you have and more. Um, If we do all of those things, then motherhood can be, I think it's almost like a spiritual experience. I actually yes. think when, when you listen to how people describe having a spiritual awakening, I think becoming a mother can be like that because it is putting you in touch with the divine. And, I, and I'm not saying that in a religious sense. I'm saying in a spiritual sense. It is giving you a firsthand experience of miracles. You know, creating a new life inside your body is a miracle. Yes. Um, and all of those things are possible, but they need adequate support preparation um, and education for that to happen. And so I I hope that, you know, the work that the people like yourself and myself and others are doing um, can help women to move move toward the place where that can be the the majority, the most common experience of becoming a mother. And the narrative. Yes. And that's what, I mean, every single person who reaches out to me and says after they hear what matrescence is, whether it's from me or from someone else, shares with me, you know, oh, my God, this finally makes sense if only I'd known. And so if we can have a different narrative about this other than, you know, so many women have said to me over the years, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing, I, it was either I love motherhood or I have postnatal depression. There, there was nothing in between. There's no story here. There's no narrative about what this is, that it is both hard and divine. It is all of these things. I think that's what I hope that your book, my book, our work, all the conversations that we're having around this begins to open the door to that, um, as you beautifully said, yes, there is a cultural story here we need to change within the patriarchy, but also if we can come back together as women and talk about this in a different way, I think we can start to experience it in a different way. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the basis of my work, Amy. I mean, everyone comes at these things from different angles, but what oral historians do is we invite people into an interview um, and invite them to tell the story of their life. And as as human beings, what, what we do when we tell our life story is we craft it into a narrative. We craft it into a story that has a beginning, middle and end and that has some lessons and some moral purpose. That's what humans are storytellers. And we do that for emotional reasons. We do that because we need to craft a story of our life that makes sense to us in order for us to to be happy and fulfilled and go on. And the really interesting thing is that we, we craft stories partly on our own 
but we craft them drawing upon the symbols and the characters and the myths and the archetypes and the legends that surround us in our society. And if all we ever hear are negative, oppressive stories of motherhood, it's very hard for an individual woman to to gain access to a different way of telling her story, an empowered and hopeful, um, love-filled way of telling her story. And so if we can help to put, you know, different ways of talking about motherhood out into our cultural sphere, that gives women more tools to, to craft those kinds of stories for themselves. Oh, my goodness, that has just made sense of what I have been doing. I didn't know that's what I was trying to do. That has just made so much sense to me, Carla. Thank you for saying that so beautifully and clearly that, yes, through us telling these stories, we give others versions of stories they can draw upon. And if we don't tell these stories, then we only get that one story that we're hearing from everybody else. Wow, I love that so much. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your work on this. Um, I will share all of the details in the in the podcast show notes we're also going to put out into the world around where people can get the book and read more about it. Um, but thank you for your insights and uh, so many goosebump moments during that conversation. Thank you so much, Amy. It's a pleasure talking with you. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.